An investor's investor. Weird. Always thinking. Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukumnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists to see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways. We're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community. Come, listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing. Today on Outside In, our guest is Jamie Kitman. It's an oversimplification, but not entirely outside the bounds, to say that Jamie's professional life embodies fast cars and rock and roll. Jamie's a longtime manager of independent rockers, they might be giants, and former manager of such musicians as Yolo Tenga, Freddie Johnston, and the Violent Femmes. Jamie also happens to be one of the world's leading automotive journalists, whose work has appeared in Road and Track, Automobile Magazine, Top Gear, Vanity Fair, Harper's, Politico, the Washington Post, and the New York Times. He is the only automotive journalist I know who has received the National Magazine Award for investigative reporting. JB's third business combines cars and entertainment. He provides vintage and unique cars to television and film sets. So those period cars you saw at Mrs. Measle, well, call JB if you want to rent one. Hi, JB, and thanks for joining us. Hi, John. I appreciate that glorious introduction. Two uh, corrections. The band that I've managed the longest is They Might Be Giants. Um, and uh, the other one is that I didn't win the National Magazine Award for investigative reporting. I won it for commentary. I won the IRE medal for investigative reporting. But that is a, um, a minor quibble. So let's start at the beginning. If my research is correct, you went to law school then clerked for the Chief Justice of New Jersey Supreme Court. So a lucrative law practice would seem to be the next step, yet you wound up someplace completely different. Why? What's well, your that, origin story? Yeah. How did you become the person you are? If you start at the real beginning, my dad was a freelance writer, so I was used to the freelance lifestyle and a dad who worked at home, even if he was kind of unreachable during the hours, uh, you know, between... 8 a.m. and 7 p.m. He didn't really want to talk about stuff that much, although he could occasionally be coaxed out. So there was that. I went to college. I worked at newspapers for three years. Um, I was on a kind of depressing copy editing track that was not going where I, I wanted it to go. So uh, by further way of background, I was kind of a um, car savant, an idiot savant from the age of like three. People would haul me out at weddings and bar mitzvahs and go, hey, kid, what's that? And I'd go, you know, that is a 1963 Dodge Dart GT. Uh, they would go, see, see. Um, and uh, in any case, didn't really interest my parents. I was born in Brooklyn, but I grew up in a nearby New Jersey suburb called Leonia, which was the headquarters for British Leyland, which made MGs and Triumphs and Jaguars and Land Rovers and Rovers and Austin Healy's. And so, and the town was kind of buzzing with them at, at lunchtime. I'd see them from my schoolyard. And um, uh, that really intrigued me, as well as giving me a really unrealistic view of what cars people drove in America. But 
in any case, I went to law school with the idea that in America, it would be kind of like learning a martial art. And I didn't really imagine that I would practice. And then I got very lucky um, and was hired to clerk for the chief justice of the New Jersey Supreme Court, who was a very smart guy named Robert Willens. And not so much because he hired me, but because his, he was just a great judge and a great legal mind. And that kind of inoculated me against the fact that I had gone to a second tier law school. But at the same time, I had, I had always sort of dabbled in writing about cars from when we knew each other back in the Columbia Spectator. I wrote their one and only automotive column for an unusual for a New York City uh, school newspaper. And I um, had been sort of selling pieces freelance uh, that I'd write at night after jobs or when I was in law school. I was able to sign on as a freelancer with a, something called Automobile Magazine, which had been started by the great editor and writer David E. Davis Jr., who I sent a story in cold to when I was really just in, still in law school. And about five months later, uh, this magazine, which was funded by Rupert Murdoch, of all people, called me up and said, wow, that story you sent us, it's really great. And uh, can we use it? And I was like, you know, sure. About a year later, I persuaded them to send me to every baseball park in America on a Corvette Roadster. So, and at that time, I had also befriended the rock band they might be giants who were um, coming up in New York and worked with a friend of mine whose name was Bill Krauss. And I had their first demo tape and I became convinced on this tour of American baseball parks that they were going to do really great. I mean, I, I love them from the first time I saw them, but I just thought they were, you know, several cuts above most stuff. So one day I realized this was in, 19, in the summer of 1986. I was in about Salt Lake City when I realized that I either had to turn around and drive basically all night for three days to get back to New Jersey in time to start my new job, or I was going to have to come up with another plan. And I figured I'd call them and sort of buy some time. And I called and said, um, I can't make it Monday. And they were like, well, Tuesday. And I was like, nah, they were like Wednesday. And they were like, you know. I just, I don't think I can make it at all, really. I'm just, I, I'm not your guy. So I, and I hung up the phone and then I was a unemployed freelance writer with a law degree. And probably about five months later, I ended up starting to manage They Might Be Giants, which in fact had been my longtime dream. In short, I basically had two parallel careers that that grew up together. And I like to say that my personality development was arrested when I was around 12 and music and cars really were my life and have been my life. What's the story of how you became the manager for the Maybe Giants? I heard that it involves um, the iconic New York State Jazz Club, the Village Gate. And it's oh, that, that is correct. At that time, I basically was, they might be giants kind of, you know, fan number one, but I had, you know, sort of like backstage access to that because we were becoming friendly and had been since I was in law school. I, I, I knew them. I saw them in 1983 playing at some crappy club in Hell's Kitchen, which was then a kind of um, rough neighborhood. And I always say that if you subtracted the guest list, there were negative three people there, but I had, had stayed in touch with them and basically had, you know, free access to their guest list. So I was media savvy somewhat having worked in newspapers and having grown up in a newspaper family. 
And uh, my dad was also a television critic, so I was a little TV savvy. You know, I would get people to come and see them and often they would love them. And so, you know, we could make some things happen. I was sort of not easily thwarted. I was a true believer, you know. I mean, you see the people in the in the Trump orbit, not to make a negative comparison, who just follow, just believe so much that they'll do anything. So I was kind of in that school and I really wanted the whole world to know about them. So I did whatever I could. We were friendly. My family was friendly with a guy named Art Delugoff, who was a great promoter and had a, this very sweetheart lease that he signed in the 1950s on a, on a jazz club in the, in the West village called the village gate. Uh, everybody played there. When I was a kid, I got to see Dizzy Gillespie and Charles Mingus, and he had, you know, Dick Gregory and Woody Allen, all these comedians that they broke there from the fifties on. But by the eighties, things were slowing down. And even though his lease was, you know, affordable, jazz wasn't pulling in the same crowds. It wasn't minting the new stars the way it had been. So I was there one night, um, and he was like, Hey kid, you know, if you know anything that can fill this room, you know, let me know, you know? And I said, well, yeah, yeah, I do. I'm friends with his band called they might be giants. And, uh, you know, they were selling out clubs in the East Village, which, you know, were about a hundred people. That was pretty much tops. So he said, well, give me 500 bucks in the bar and, you know, let me sell liquor to these people and, you know, you can have the room. So I said, okay, we'll rent it for two shows. And then I went to the Giants with their producer, live sound man, Bill Krause, who was a college friend of mine um, and uh, who had introduced me to them. And we said, like, look, we can do this show. You're only playing in the East Village. Let's take it to the West Village and see if we can make something happen, which is funny to think about now, but um, uh, how, you know, parochial it was. They were like, oh, you know, I don't know, you know. And I was like, you know, that we can sell 450 tickets a show times two. And, they, you know, and that, that was a, that was more tickets than they would have ever sold at that point. They were like, our deal is we get $150 and that's, that's our deal. You know, give us $150. You guys want to spend your money promoting this show. That's great. And so Bill and I did that and really through no fault of our own, there was a, a publicist in New York, which I think her name was Jane Friedman, but she was intrigued by them might be giants. And I think probably one of them as clients, but somehow she managed to get a story about the show placed in the New York times before it ran. And that night before the show, uh, it came out and that night, I think we ended up selling like 700 tickets or something like that. And at the end of the night, we were all backstage, Bill and John and John and I, and hit you know, like $6,000 in cash. And we were like, you know, you got to take more of this money than $150 and being the stand up Yankees that they were, they were like, you know, that's, that's what we agreed to give us $150. And each gave them each $75. And then, you know, I may have been that same night. It makes a better story that way. But within a couple of days, if not the same night, um, though it could have been, they were like, Hey, do you want to be our manager? And I was like, yes, I do. Is it as simple as that? Because a lot of managers have very short careers, but I've never met um, John or John, but um, they seem authentic. You say they're authentic. Is it as simple as that to have a world career as a manager that sort of neither side is an ass and lets the, the other one do the job? I'm not so modest uh, to say that I, that I had nothing to do with their success. I think it was really important that they had somebody in their camp who was completely, you know, a true believer and also who was sort of sophisticated enough to understand how the 
figure out is more accurate how the business worked and who was making decisions was not afraid to go up the chain to talk to higher ups and sell them. Yeah, I'm much more comfortable selling other people than myself. I think in the, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it, the first step is a great artist and the second step is a great manager. And uh, I mean, without them, I, I wouldn't have necessarily had the opportunity to work with a, a, any of the bands that I did work with, many of whom were just great. I never worked with somebody I didn't really respect and admire. And we turned down bands that went on to do really well. And there were days where it's like, wow, I wish my standards were lower. It's kind of like the legal profession, you know, like I yield to no man and my distaste for most managers or most lawyers. That said, there's some great ones and, you know, I, I admire them and would aspire to be more like them, you know, honest sure. and, you know, and fair. You mentioned earlier that your, your emotional self was set when you were 12 with, you know, cars and rock and roll. Those are two areas that generally encourage, I guess, excess. Although to be <laughs> fair, the type of independent bands you've represented don't immediately bring to mind trash on albums. Still, I read an early article you wrote about, I guess this was their first road trip. And as usual, you had leveraged a vehicle, a Plymouth Voyager did it. <laughs> and there were plenty of stories about crash pads provided by fans where I guess the giants seemed to be sort of in the eye of the storm. It was going on all around them. So those are other times. There must be a few occasions to your career where you thought, yeah, if I had stayed a practicing lawyer, I never would have experienced this. Uh oh, for sure. In terms of, you know, like the debauchery, I certainly saw a lot of that, but part of me thinks that that's just a human, you know, trait. Every person who works for a corporation who's been to a convention can tell you a story that, you know, they wouldn't want to tell their children about. But the experience of working with the Giants was refreshing in the sense that they were hardworking, clean living by rock standards. They were squeaky clean. Um, they were not womanizers. I remember on that trip in the minivan, uh, which was actually the Giants' second tour. They had done a, some 10-day tour before that we were in Kansas City and it was, you know, like, for some reason that at least 700 people came out. It was sort of like five cent beer night or something like that, or ladies drink for free all night long. But at, at the end of the night, we went, we were in the dressing room and you know, it was probably the biggest show they'd ever played to date. And the most beautiful woman came backstage, you know, just like sort of opened the door and was there and, and tried to sit down on John Linnell's lap. And he sort of like, you know, kind of like shooed her away. And then she was like, well, you know, what are you doing tonight? And he was like, you know, going to bed. And she was like, you know, want to, you know, want to party. And he was like, no. And the entire, you know, room of, of the promoters and the, our skeleton crew and everybody else were like, I want to party. But that was uh, striking. And, and they were just like that. I mean, they would go to weird museums and read books and watch movies and have very funny intelligent, uh, conversations. They were, you know, they'd be like great dinner party guests at your dinner party. Moving away from the Mappy Giants, just generally about cars and rock and roll. That has been a linkage of Chuck Berry's Cadillac Coupe de Ville motivating over the hill to, you know, to thousands of music videos like ZZ Top Lip, Pony Contained Cartwheeling Over Black and White Jaguar XJs in White Snake's music video. 
And mm. lots of people have speculated on sort of the relationship between cars and rock and roll, talking about freedom, power, sex, rebellion. But you have lived in both of those worlds. What's your take on the relationship between cars and rock and roll? Well, well I think I think those things are both um, true, but they're I mean they're they're really true. And I mean when I was driving that Corvette uh, across country to baseball parks. I remember being in a gas station twice where a woman who was working in the gas station, you know, like selling cigarettes and candy bars would come out and go take me with you. I had um, the first new beetle in New York city, 1996. And a woman literally just climbed in the car, really attractive young woman. Um, and was like, where are we go? You know? And, uh, so there there's, there's something to that, the freedom and the, the ones that happened out, out West, it really was like, you know, it was just like, let's just drive, let's just drive, which, which I was unable to, uh, comply with. But I think there's also a lot of opportunity for people who have sort of obsessive personalities to focus on the details. Now, I think that that describes in, in terms of cars that usually describes men, but not always. There's some really great car journalists who are women and car executives and designers and engineers, uh, but, um, the, you know, predominantly male rock and roll is, you know, really depends on the band. Like the giants had a pretty evenly split fan base. So, you know, people who write clever lyrics are people who really into that. Um, but you know, then there are other ones who are just like, I love, you know, I mean, we managed the band, the meat puppets and the lead guitarist was a handsome strapping fellow named Kurt, Kurt Kirkwood. He had long hair, would play with no shirt on and women would just go, I love his hair, you know, like let me backstage, you know, um, or we managed the band. Okay. Go. And, um, the lead singer was it was a handsome lad and uh, you know women would just like you know swoon over him i don't think it really admits of much over analysis to the elements that you isolated you know like the the freedom the the power i think um there is a, a touch of uh, danger uh in both those things that appeals to people and uh kind of like i'm gonna live for the moment and devil may care type of feeling. How do you define America's relationship with the automobile? Well, I think it's, it's profound. Um, uh, I know, you know, it's funny to me that not everybody thinks about it as much as I do, but I guess I'm glad that they don't. It's such a broad question. It's obviously had a, you know, like an indescribably massive impact on the way the country is laid out, how industry and, and, um, money and, you know, everything, you know, agriculture and everything that happens, um, is, is divvied up and, and experienced and things like that. When I was younger, I mean, as much as I like cars, it seemed like completely insane, uh, model that like the whole wealth, wealth, well-being of the society depended on the, the ever expanding sales of automobiles that, you know, and that things would have to break and be replaced. And that if they weren't broken that they'd be replaced because they were deliberately made unfashionable, not unlike today's Apple computer or any other cell phones or any other technology where everything has to be made obsolete. So I think, you know, it's certainly uh, adrenalized that 
move towards, you know, planned obsolescence and beyond what people might legitimately improve and, you know, create a new demand for. I think it, you know, it played a big role in, in the breakdown of, of families and, um, in obviously in the, the populating of, of remote, more remote areas, um, the growth, the movement of people to the Sunbelt and places like that would have been possible without cars. And, um, you know, it's a genie that's out of the bottle. I mean, I don't see it going away anytime soon. I, I'm a big advocate of mass transit, but you know, the old movement towards autonomous cars, for instance, I see as being in direct opposition to the hope that mass transit would be revived or even, you know, like kept from withering away. Um, cause it's, it's going to be so expensive to do all that stuff. And it's like, where, where is the society devoting its resources? And to me, it seems insane to spend trillions of dollars so people can just game at, uh, in their car and, you know, and sit in the back seat while they're drunk, being driven home, um, from the, wherever, but it, that seems inevitably where it's going, you know, and, and it's not, it's not because it's going to make it safer, which, you know, in some ways it might, in other ways it probably won't, um, or that it's going to make it less congested. In fact, it might make it more congested as everybody's in the back of their pod instead of riding in a subway, um, or on a in, intercontinental train. But nobody talks about that. And so it just, it just happens like so many things. So that's one of the two big trends in automobiles. Obviously the other one is electrification. Mm -hmm. um, why is it taking so long and why is the U.S. laggy behind Europe? And how do you see electric vehicles evolving? Well, I don't, I, first of all, I don't know that the U.S. is particularly lagging behind Europe. And of course, you know, we have Tesla to take credit stroke blame for, which is, you know, the, is really the world's leading electric car company right at this moment, although it's unclear if they can maintain that position. The oil industry, you, you can't tell the story of America in the 20th century or really the late 19th century or the rise of the modern corporation or the slow uptake in the growth of the electric vehicle market in America without discussing oil. But it's, you know, they're massively powerful. Uh, they've been opposed violently from the beginning. They oppose anything that might be a threat to their continued dominance of, of the energy market. And, uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time writing about, um, and working on a TV show and a, a book now about the history of lead and gasoline and lead was introduced as a gasoline additive because as the car population grew in the teens and twenties. Um, the quality of gasoline sort of got lower and lower as they try to make what they had go further and further. And uh, the industry, uh, introduced lead or not the industry, but uh, a company called Ethel, which was formed by General Motors, Standard Oil of New Jersey, today's ExxonMobil and a joint venture, uh, um, GM incidentally was owned by DuPont then. So those three companies got together and, and came up with this, this patented additive of lead, which you could put in gasoline and which would raise its octane. So, which was important to curing engine knock, which was a problem with lesser gasolines. However, uh, a couple of three years before they discovered that they, the GM engineers, a guy named Charles Kettering, in fact, 
who we know uh, his name from the Sloan Kettering Memorial Cancer Center. Sloan was the chairman of GM. Kettering was the uh, head of research and development and uh, the guy who's credited with discovering leaded gasoline. Um, Kettering and his assistant were driving around the country in an ethanol-powered car. It was actually 70% ethanol and 30% gasoline, and maybe it was the other way around, 30, 70. But, um, and they were like, this is the fuel of the future. It's renewable. It's clean. It's got no emissions. It's got, it doesn't destroy the engine um, and dunk it up. And, um, you know, then they discovered this other thing. The problem with ethanol was they couldn't patent it because um, any idiot with a still could make ethanol in his backyard. Lead gasoline was, you know, super duper toxic, deadly, um, uh, heavy metal neurotoxin and in its form that they used, which is called tetraethylet, a compound. It was, you know, massively more powerful than a regular lead exposure. It killed the guy who invented it. It was sat on a shelf for seven years before they had the idea of adding it to gasoline. And suddenly everybody at GM had a complete memory loss about the fact that there was any alternatives. But it was quite controversial in the 1920s and it got added. Um, and it was the power of the automobile industry and standard oil that made it become ubiquitous around the world with the help of the United States government, several foreign governments. And literally it is still sold, even though they've known since the very beginning that it was probably hazardous. Uh, they definitely knew that it was hazardous by the 1950s and you know, it, incontrovertibly by the 1970s, it's, it was sold for another 50 years and we still use it in the United States in propeller plants. It's been outlawed for cars. I was a history major and in my book, um, I used to wonder like between the car auto industry and the oil industry, who's more evil. And it's, I, I gotta say, it's the oil industry hands down, but the, the auto industries it's they, it's on the list, but it's much further down. Speaking of historical trends, you're in three businesses, automobiles, journalism, and music that are undergoing rapid transformation. <laughs> My piece of advice would be lucky and, um, don't, don't delude yourself. If something is not going, you know, after a certain number of months or years, it's, it's not happening. Um, don't associate yourself with people who don't want to work hard. If you're the only one who's working hard, especially if you're not even the front person of what you're doing, like a band, if you're working harder than your band, then there's a problem, you know? Um, and then in terms of, of everything else, like, you know, you gotta, you gotta do what you say you're going to do as best as you can. You can't leave people hanging. You can't miss deadlines. You can't trifle with other people. You can't be a, a uh, an asshole, you know, really you, you can be, but it, it's in my experience when people are, it's always a mistake. You know, there's never really, it's really never necessary to tell somebody to go fuck themselves or embarrass them because they did something that, you know, maybe you have a legitimate gripe about, but, or, or your band does, or your, you know, whatever, um, because you, you'll hear from them again, you know, and you, you really don't want that person's memory of you to be that way better to just file it away so uh you can't be motivated by negative emotion so much i mean er, er, there's there's a principle that we used to talk about that uh a friend of mine um adam bernstein who actually directed the first giants videos and now is a very successful director of tv shows um he used to call it reeve energy 
um, of just like, you know, like getting even with people who made you mad, but it was, it was kind of a joke. And, and he knew that, you know, too, that this is not the way forward is to, you know, go settle petty gripes. And, you know, there's the exceptions. There's the Donald Trumps of the world who seem to go far that way. But really, I think that being empathetic to the people that you're working with and reporting to and who make decisions, uh, covering you, not, not thinking that not becoming paranoid and thinking that, you know, that you're getting screwed personally, as opposed to just being in a shitty industry, uh, is really, it's, it's, it's useful. It keeps the, the spring in your step and it keeps you from lashing out in ways that are going to be counterproductive. So those are some tips. What's exciting for you now? What's next? What are you passionate about? Well, I'm still, I'm obsessed by this story of lead and gasoline and, um, I am it, it is the great paradigm of all modern pollution where a product is introduced, it's oversold. They say it's a miracle, it's magic, it's going to make the world a better place. People stand up, you know, scientists, doctors, medical community, um, and say, this actually sounds like a terrible idea and it's going to probably do this, this, and this. And they're like, well, this is the first example of people going like, well, you know, you say it's bad. We say it's. We don't know. So let's study it for 40 years while we make billions of dollars. And then when it turns out you were right, we'll just kind of like, you know, kind of stroll away into the shadows uh, about it, which is what happened with lead gasoline, GM and Standard Oil of New Jersey, today's ExxonMobil and DuPont um, in the 60s started to sell off their interest in it and stop talking about it. So um, where does the book come out? Well, I'm writing it now. I'm working on it and uh, I'm working on a, t- a TV show with some serious folks. Um, I don't, I don't want to get into it a lot more, but I'd say, you know, watch this space for the next couple of years, probably. Let's finish with some quick questions and answers, like one sentence answers. How do you relax? Not my specialty. One, one sentence answers. Um, oh, I like to read. I'm a big baseball fan, Pittsburgh Pirates fan, third generation. My sons are the fourth generation. Um, I like to cook. Uh, I like to garden when I, when I can, I like to do some light futzing around with old cars, but mostly, uh, yeah, those things. What are you reading right now? I'm actually reading a book about screenwriting, just, uh, it, to get up to speed on just sort of how best to tell some stories, historical stories theatrically. What music do you listen to? I, I've heard you say you're a harmony fan. So who, oh, yeah. does, who does harmony in a way that's new and yet commercial to not commercial? Uh, you know, I wish I could tell you who's really great at it because um, I'm I'm really out, out of touch right now. Uh, I've listened mostly to old music. Um, I've reached that old fart stage in my life where I'm just like, you know, my kids play new music that I like. Um, often and I have a fairly high uh, affinity for someone my age for hip hop music and stuff like that. Where once again, like melody and uh, stuff like that really appeals to me. But so we, historically, I, yeah, it was things, I mean, I love the Everly Brothers and that's what attracted me to They Might Be Giants. They reminded me of the Everly Brothers the very first time I saw them. Last question. If you could magically whisper into the ear of everyone in the world, what would you tell them? I'll go with the, something along the, don't worry, be happy things, you know, it could be worse. I always liked that quote. I think it was one of Eisenhower's 
cabinet members, I forget his name. If somebody says uh, to the guy, he's like, the guy's depressed and somebody says, cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up and things got worse. <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Outside In with our special guest, J.B. Kitman, um, world-renowned automotive journalist, rock manager, renter of period and exotic cars to productions. Um, some interesting observations about the role of cars, music, and society. JB, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, pleasure, John. Thank you. You've been listening to Spark Network's Outside In with John Lukonik, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals. Outside In is produced by Connor Ohingasa, John Lukonik, executive producer. It is available from Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember to subscribe, leave us a review, follow us on social media. Thanks much for listening.